Good day, old chum. I am truly honored that you have chosen once again to listen to my humble musings about some of the greatest cultural icons of the modern era. This is, of course, the third installment of Bureau 42's Big Screen Batman series, and I am your host, Blaine Dowler. So our narrative left off in 1949, when our dynamic duo appeared in their serialized live-action adventure. Superheroes were common central characters in such forms of entertainment. Then, in the 1950s, Frederick Wortham gave the comic book industry a black eye, blaming them for the evils of the day's youth, although it has recently become public knowledge that his data was falsified in order to produce the desired result. At the time, he was well-regarded and even presented his case before the U.S. Congress. Comic books changed dramatically almost overnight, and Hollywood started giving them a pretty wide berth. Batman and Robin were a prominent target of his attacks, as they were amongst the only characters without steady love interests. The comics explained that this was because Batman was so obsessed with his quest for justice that neither of them had time for women. Wortham argued that they didn't need women because they found both spiritual and physical love with each other instead. In the 1950s, this was not good for sales. The tone of the Batman books changed dramatically, becoming much lighter and goofier fare than they had been in the past, introducing multiple potential love interests for both leads as well. By the time the Wortham storm blew over in the mid-1960s, comic reading audiences were starting to come back to superheroes. Fox picked up the license to produce a TV series based on Batman. It would be expensive and still somewhat risky in the United States market alone. Over in England, the BBC had started to pioneer a new technique of selling TV series. They produced feature-length movies based on their characters, or simply edited some of their episodes together into a feature-length piece, and distributed the movie in potential markets. If the film was successful, those markets would be easier to sell a TV series to. Fox chose to borrow this plan, which had already worked for The Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves, and started planning a Batman movie to launch the series in all markets and lead into a TV show. The movie would have a summer 1966 release, and the series would launch that September. They hired Bill Dozier to produce and Lorenzo Semple Jr. to write. Semple respected the source material enough to draw his characters from that source and to preserve the relationships between the characters as they were written, but he put comedy at the top of his priority list. Unfortunately, ABC had a very poorly performing fall 1965 TV lineup. Production of the Batman series and several other shows was kicked into high gear, which meant that Batman would hit TV in January of 1966, and the movie would come out between the first two seasons of the series with very little downtime for the rapidly assembled cast. So respectable but little-known actor Adam West was cast as Batman and Bruce Wayne. Struggling real estate agent and acting student Burt Ward was cast as Robin and Dick Grayson. Ellen Napier continued the tradition of the tall, thin Alfred Pennyworth, although his version was eminently capable, much like the 1949 version rather than the 1943 version. And Neil Hamilton played Commissioner James Gordon. The performers brought in to play the villains were also incredibly notable. I just won't get into the huge list of talent that appeared on the TV series, and we'll just go through the four that we see in the movie. So, first of all, we have the Joker. He's played by Cesar Romero, a Latin lover extraordinaire who outright refused to shave his trademark mustache for the role. When he was having the argument with the makeup department, it was actually Adam West who suggested that they just leave the mustache on and paint it white. And it actually works well enough for this particular version of the show. The second one cast was Burgess Meredith as the Penguin, who will probably also always be known as the Penguin to me. When I read the comics, it's still Burgess Meredith that I hear in my head. The Riddler was played by Frank Gorshin. At the time, he was just an impressionist and a comedian, 
Uh, he was also appeared later on as one of the black and white aliens in the Star Trek episode titled Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. I'm very impressed with his abilities after watching this movie well, five times to prepare for this podcast. If you watch him carefully, you will notice that frequently his mask won't stay where it's supposed to be. It's often popping up and blocking his eyes. That's not hard to spot. One of the things that really surprises me is that there are times when it happens when he's in motion and has to hit his marks and has to deliver lines, and it never slows him down. And it never slows him down. And the fourth villain that we have in this film is Catwoman. Now, she's played by Lee Merriweather, who's the only one who didn't also play the same role in the first season of the TV series, at least. Uh, Frank Gorshin stepped away from the Riddler for the second of the three seasons. Julie Newmar was cast in the TV series, but she had a scheduling conflict. So Merriweather was a last-minute addition. And in fact, filming had already started when she was cast, which is why some of the submarine scenes only have the three male villains. Now, in my opinion, she is also the best-looking live-action Catwoman that we've had to date. Uh, she'd been Miss America in 1955, coming out of California, and she's still absolutely stunning in 1966. The costume they have her in fits so snugly that they didn't have zippers or seams to get her in and out. They sewed her in at the start of every day and then popped the stitches each night to get her out of it. Now, because they filmed so many of her scenes near the end of the shoot, as she hadn't been cast at the beginning, this also meant she had some incredibly long days, but it never shows on screen. So she's got to be working 12 and 14 and possibly 16-hour days, She's relatively inexperienced. Cesar Romero was known for sort of taking her under his wing and helping her through it. But she had to get there early for the makeup and the costume. She had to stay in the costume all day. And it doesn't take much to figure out how inconvenient that is when you're talking about 12 or 16 hours wearing something that you can't take off. And yet it never comes out in her performance. She's also one of the few villains that we see acting outside of the costume. So she plays a dual role, as in this film, Catwoman has a faked secret identity. Now, the movie itself has no less than 10 major characters in a 105-minute running time, but nobody feels shortchanged. Now, part of that is accomplished by dispensing of every origin story. It is clear that every character knows every other character, at least when they have the masks on, they know how to relate to each other, they know who the good guys or bad guys are, and it's assumed the audience knows or will pick that up very quickly. There's also a very high proportion of action sequences in this, compared even to the later films, even if a lot of them do get very goofy. And there are some utterly absurd escapes, one of which features a conveniently located and utterly noble porpoise. We also get the series' distinctive visual effects, you know, the pow, bam, biff, when they're fighting that jump up on screen as words. It just so characterized the series, and they were on full display in the final submarine battle. Now, that battle is also one where one of the stunt performers was very seriously injured by jumping into a shallow pool. He accidentally knocked himself unconscious when he hit a submerged pipe. So, thankfully, his fellow performers noticed, brought him out. You know, he not only survived, but he made a complete recovery. But it was a concern for everyone on set that day. 
Now, there's also what is possibly the best-known action sequence, where Batman finds a bomb and has to try and get rid of it. But some days you just can't get rid of a bomb, as he's running around the Santa Barbara Pier and trying to avoid the Salvation Army Band and nuns and young lovers in a boat and some ducks that are clearly wood following their mother. And he just delivers that some days you just can't get rid of a bomb line in that very distinct Adam West cadence. So even the conversations between the villains are entertaining when they're plotting, not just because of the manic energy that they all have when they're doing their performances, but also because the camera features Dutch angles or the slanted camera mountings that emphasize the idea that these guys are crooked. There's another impressive part of Frank Gorshin's performance in one of these scenes, where for a moment he's giving a straight and a positive message and a speech about how things really should be, and during that speech he actually appears to straighten out up and down on screen, because as an actor he just tipped his body to match the angle of the camera. So it looks right on screen, but he's really hitting the mark and he does it quickly and it appears to be effortlessly. And this is in a movie that didn't have a lot of time for rehearsal. It also had a few very quick rewrites. One of the reasons that Adam West did it was because, you know, they would just recast Batman if he didn't, but these suits were incredibly uncomfortable. So one of his requests, or very emphatic request, was that he get more time as Bruce Wayne out of the suit, just for his own personal comfort. So I don't want to get into too many details in the plot, especially in the final joke ending that, you know, you could interpret completely differently, especially when Batman talks about, you know, he and Robin just making a very inconspicuous departure from the scene. You know, and but the movie, it is campy. It's deliberately campy. And it's an accurate representation of the comics of its era. You can't really criticize a 1966 feature that spun out of an insanely popular TV series because it bears too little resemblance to the Dark Knight interpretation written by Denny O'Neill or Frank Miller when neither of them had written the character at all at this point. For the previous 10 to 15 years, this was how Batman existed in the comics. And given that the primary target audience were kids, that meant that The primary target audience knew only this version at this point. So doing Batman in this style at this time was the right way to do it, especially following the problems with Frederick Wortham. And partly because of that choice, the film actually ages pretty well. This Gotham City bears no resemblance at all to to the real world of 1966. And it doesn't try to, So even though, yeah, it does feel like 1960s in terms of the color and the style, it's not a dramatic difference in ages. The main characters don't look 1960-ish. You'll see that more in the hairstyles and clothing of the, you know, bit parts and the walk-ons and the extras, but they don't get a lot of screen time, so it doesn't really stand out all that well. We also have Adam West and Burt Ward, who nailed these versions of the parts so well that they really couldn't get other jobs after this. If you look at what Adam West has done since then, 
They're largely a series of small cameo appearances where he's basically asked to play Batman again, just not by name. Whereas Burt Ward managed to build a career by founding Boy Wonder Visual Effects, which is a post-production house, and kept himself busy behind the camera instead of in front of it. In fact, this version became so entrenched in the public consciousness that the longest gap between Batman films in history followed the release of this film. Nobody would even try to put Batman in film again for 20 years. And, you know, you could say it's because this movie bombed, but if it bombed, why did it lead to two more seasons of the series? And, I mean, we are about the, the movies. The series was expensive for a TV series. That is largely why it wrapped up at the end of season three. But if they hadn't already started taking apart the Batcave set, it would have just jumped networks like Wonder Woman did. So this wasn't a failure in any way, shape, or form at the time. Except to a few comic book purists who remembered Batman from the 30s and 40s. But again, that's not who they were aiming for. Comics were for kids in this era, and so are the comic adaptations. So I'd say this is probably the most enjoyable version of the character to date that we've discussed in the series of podcasts. And it's still more enjoyable than some of the ones we have coming. In any event, that's about all I have to say about the 1966 Batman movie. So join us again on the 14th of April when we jump ahead to 1989. Thank you for listening.